All right, so we're still in Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Isaiah chapter 29. Um, And as we talked about last week, uh, chapter 28, the second half of 28, and uh, basically we've been kind of going over and looking at Judah and Israel and how these political and religious leaders are evil. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Instead, they keep on following after their own ways. They see a vision of what the world can be like under an alliance with these foreign nations, and they decide to follow it every time. And every time they do it, it fails. Um, And God, meanwhile, is sitting there saying, trust me, trust me. Um, And it keeps on happening over and over again. So today we're going to see how that actually plays out even more. Um, I actually have a new PowerPoint. Ooh, fancy, I know. I don't know if any of you can read that. It's my first time doing it. I don't even include the maps this time, so we're just going to keep going. All right. You should have those memorized anyway, right? Thanks, Dan. (laughs) Do you really? Okay, we'll talk after. I was going to give you a star and everything. Anyway, starting with verse 1. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year. Let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentations, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you. And you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech shall be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. So Isaiah now discusses a place called Ariel. We have hints as to where Ariel is, is um, in this discussion with David being encamped, as well as the feasts. Jerusalem seems to be the most likely place, as it was where David set the capital of Israel during his reign, and that the feasts occurred here further signifies this, because it was the, Jerusalem is the capital of um, the religious center, so that's where the temple was located. Still, the question is why the term now Ariel? It's never used anywhere else in the scriptures. Um, And as it is, there's some debate. Some believe it is a variant of city of Salem or city of El. Another is that it reflects the lion of God. And since there is reference in Genesis of Judah being compared to a lion, it seems fitting. The final thought, however, is that it represents an altar hearth. Um, This final statement seems the most consistent as it implies a place where God dwells. Likewise, um, an altar is a place where sacrifices are made, and a hearth is reminiscent of a home. Because of this, Ariel may mean to represent the religious center for the Jewish people, which would be Jerusalem. Despite it being the religious center for the people, we find it to be a place of mourning, not a place of festivals and hope, but a place of lament. That Jerusalem will become like an Ariel may represent that the people themselves will become the sacrifice for their sins. Oswald, who's a commentator, says it well. Then indeed she will be Ariel, an altar hearth, when the nation itself becomes the sacrifice. If we treat lightly the sacrifices God has made available, and in the Christian era, era, the sacrifice, then we ourselves become the sacrifice. If we will not accept God's uh, substation, we must carry the burden of our own sin. As such, we find the reason for their distress. God is encamped against them. While David had encamped within Jerusalem, God is on the outside with armies against her. Um, 
he has brought a siege against Jerusalem. The result of this siege is destruction, that they will speak from the earth may represent either one enemy beating down the other enemy and their foot is pressed against their neck on the ground. Alternatively, it can all be representing simply death. This seems more likely as the way the text describes their situation is one without any hope. They are truly dead in light of the judgment against them. Now we'll start on verse 5. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitudes of the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Oftentimes in the prophets, a word of judgment and despair is followed by one of hope for a remnant. We have seen it many times in Isaiah, and we now encounter it again. Despite the judgment which comes against them, despite God sending a foreign army even against them, God will still deliver them. Yes, the enemy is strong before them, but in comparison with God, they are like dust. Their ruthlessness will abruptly come to an end. How? How is it possible that the enemies which surround will so quickly dissolve? The answer is that God will come. His power is not just humans, but all of nature. While the pagans deified nature, God is in control of it. Whether it be audible or inaudible, seen or unseen, to move or devour, God is in control of everything. There is some debate as to who is dreaming in the dream sequence that we see. Is it Jerusalem who dreams and in dreaming sees these great armies coming against them only to awake and find that they are safe? Or is it the armies themselves who dream, believing themselves capable of overthrow only to find that they have no power at all? In either case, we see how the dream is nothing in comparison with the reality of the situation. Though a hungry man dreams of eating food, but awakes and he's ravenous, and the thirsty man dreams of drink, but wakes up with thirst, so it is with the nations. They are not powerful in comparison with God. And now we're going to finish out what we're going to be going over today, 9 through 14. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. 
Isaiah has consistently called the leaders to one thing, and that is faith. He has proclaimed repeatedly that they should turn away from trusting in the powers of the world and instead trust in God. So he tells them now, be astonished, continue in in blindness, continue in drunkenness. Though you think you are leading well, you stagger about because of your faithlessness. Despite God sending his warnings and his continued desire that they should repent and place their faith in him, we see now that God is going to silence those whom he has sent. The prophets are unable to proclaim what they see because God has blinded them. The seers are unable to lead because God has given them no visions. If this is the case, then how can a people know which way to turn, which way to go, if God has hidden himself from them? We see the way it is understood. The message Isaiah has proclaimed has been simple. Repent and have faith. Despite this, those who are supposed to be the leaders are ignoring the simple instruction because they cannot break the seal around them. The leaders know how to read, yet they cannot or refuse to open the scroll to read it. This makes us wonder, if the leaders are unable to open it and read it, what about the normal individuals who cannot read at all? In both cases, there is only darkness instead of light. From such blindness comes judgment. The leaders claim to be near God. They proclaim to everyone around them, follow us, we follow God. They claim to want to glorify God and to walk after him. While most would see the outside of a person and believe they are in the right, God knows the heart of each of us. He knows that they do not truly love him, desire him, or want to glorify him. They claim fear, but there is no true fear within them. Because the leaders, both religious and political, are of such a state, God will send his judgment. He will do something which is as wonderful as the Exodus. He will do something incredible. What is that? He will end their wisdom and discernment. Those who claim knowledge, wisdom, and discernment will be no more. Whatever seemed right in their own eyes will be turned upside down by God's mighty design. Alrighty, so the main point of these verses are to describe the situation in Jerusalem, the religious capital of the nation. Though it was the place of God, the people will find themselves in judgment because of their blindness. The religious and political leaders have failed the people by encouraging them into what was only wise and discerning in their own sight. Still, there is hope in the passage. Despite God's might coming in the form of other nations, He will still judge those nations, the powers of the world, and he will save his city from not only them, but from himself and his own judgment. So, all right, Isaiah, right? Isaiah does not hesitate to criticize those around him. It doesn't matter who it is, whether the political or religious leaders or the people themselves. In the end, Isaiah sees both the disease and the symptom of the disease within the people And the only way to eradicate the disease and the symptom is to heal the people, and that is through truth. Yet the truth can be so hard to speak, and it can be so hard to hear. We all have this desire within us to be liked by those around us. We all long to be appreciated for all that we have accomplished. We do not want to be seen negatively by those around us, and because of these things, we are willing to oftentimes, perhaps too often, not speak the truth in society for the sake of peace. Yet the question we need to ask is, what is the peace we are seeking? Is it true peace? The ancient leadership, 
And the people were content to find peace in the worldly powers, trusting in their alliances, their wealth, and their vision to give them security and peace in this life. Despite the fact that God had said to trust in him and him alone, they continued to trust in the world for their peace. On the outside, it may have appeared that they did have peace with each other and with the world. Yet the truth is they had no real peace either within themselves or with the things that they thought would bring them peace. Because such things of the world do not bring peace. They bind us, they blind us, and they force us to accept what they proclaim while we are left in the dust. Toe the line or else. It is because of this Isaiah's proclamation today is so significant for us. It is reminiscent of Jesus in the New Testament when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So it is with the leaders and the people in Isaiah's time. They seem to be on the good and the right path. It is a reasonable path. It looks as though it will bring incredible peace for them to make alliances with the world. Indeed, it will keep the world at bay from swallowing them up, or at least that's how it appears. Yet what do we find happen repeatedly? They are like whitewashed tombs. The alliances, the people they look, um, that look nice on the outside, but on the inside they are corrupt, they are broken, they will fail. As Christians today, we must take warning. As individual Christians and as the church, the body of Christ, it can become easy for us to be sidetracked by appearing more righteous than we are. It is also possible for us to be just as whitewashed, to be tombs filled with dead bones, just as those who came before us. But what does that look like? I suspect it looks like what many experience today, both individually and corporately. Individually, there are many Christians who have been seeking their own way. Just this past week, I encountered a video of a well-known YouTuber who denies the central tenet of Christianity, of the Christian faith, which is that Jesus is God. One of the arguments he makes is that he reads his Bible and the Spirit illuminates him to have the correct understanding. Now, it is true that the Holy Spirit illuminates. Yet what is to say that A, the Spirit within is actually the Holy Spirit, and B, that the Spirit is actually illuminating you. You see, we have in our individualistic side of the Christian faith incredible egoism. We believe we are sufficient with our relationship with God. We do not really need anyone else. We just need God. While there is some truth to this, in the end, we are all individuals saved by grace through faith. We are also not the only ones in existence, nor the only ones called. Indeed, in the New Testament, we learn of the body of Christ and how each person is gifted with their spiritual gifts. One has wisdom, one has knowledge, one has giving, one is able to serve, so on. Unfortunately, when we have such a high individualism, we believe we have been gifted with all the gifts ourselves. Every gift of the Spirit, including wisdom and knowledge. Because of this, we often have the high view that whatever anyone comes to believe from the Scriptures is true. Yet is it? Consider the case above with the well-known YouTuber who denies Jesus' divinity. If it's true that any belief is as valid as any other, if it is true that anyone can simply read their Bible and come to an understanding because we are all indwelled by the Spirit, 
then he isn't wrong. But what he says goes against the basic teaching of the historic Christian faith. You see, one doesn't want to devalue the spirit within each of us, but instead we should be encouraging each other to accept and embrace the various gifts given to each of us. This doesn't mean that we do not earnestly seek or request to be given wisdom and knowledge. Of course we do. We read our Bibles. We seek understanding. But we cannot just assume that because we have the Spirit, that our thoughts or beliefs are in tune with Him. Instead, we need to check our beliefs and understandings against the teachings of the Scriptures in context and as a whole, as well as against the teaching of the historic church. If we fail to do this, then we will find ourselves becoming like whitewashed tombs, individuals who... Uh, like those who came before, whether the political or religious leaders at the time of Isaiah, who seemed wise in their own eyes, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jesus' day, who were critiqued for much the same thing. We can become just like them. Now, we could leave it at, with our individualistic side of things. But the truth is, the corporate church is just as capable of erring in these ways also. It is possible for our congregations to become corrupted when they seek to make alliances with the world rather than with God. When they seek the easy way of reforming their beliefs with the cultural trends rather than standing firm on the foundation of Christ, the scriptures, and Christian history. There are many in our time who spend a lot of time criticizing the church because of failures past and present. Individuals who look scornfully at the church because of such failures in leadership and laypersons. As such, they reject the local congregation because they are full of failures and hypocrites. The simple truth is, such criticisms are warranted. The church fails because it is full of individuals who are failures. In fact, that we fail so often is further evidence that what we proclaim is true. Christianity does not teach we are perfect, but that we are in desperate need of grace and mercy. For our sinfulness. If this is true of us as individuals, then what does it mean for us as a corporate identity? It means that we are all that much more in need of God's grace and mercy. It means that we are bound to make the wrong decisions. It means we are to request further wisdom and guidance to keep us on the right path and to be brought back on the correct path um, if we err. Not if we err, but when we err. What is the number one way we often err? By being like the world, talking like the world, believing like the world, acting like the world, instead of being a distinctive people for the glory of God. Then we will find all the same results as those who came before us. They were judged for their faithless tendencies to trust in the world rather than God. If we should prove faithless, is it any different than their disobedience? Isn't it ultimately trampling on the blood of Christ, which we proclaim? When we seek the world and its peace, is it not a complete rejection of what God offers us? God has called us to be the salt and the light, to proclaim the truth to the world, to urge others to find peace, not with the world, but with him. But it doesn't make us feel comfortable when we speak the truth to this world. It was uncomfortable for Christ as well. It was uncomfortable for the disciples. It was uncomfortable for the prophets. It was not easy for them. It led to all of them being persecuted for the truth they proclaim, the truth that God exists. His son Jesus Christ saves us from our sins and that there is a right and a wrong way to live. When the church as a whole separates from these things and when we reject what has come before, we reject the prophets and we reject God himself. 
Such a thing has happened too often. And we see the repercussions in a godless society which seeks more and more power on earth than peace with heaven. We would rather trust in our own devices and designs rather than the one God has designed for us. The design which is pure and simple faith in him. Can you imagine what would happen if we would simply have faith? If we would simply be faithful? The answer is provided for us in today's text. We would awake from the nightmare of the fears of the world, of the powers of the world, and find that they are nothing more than a dream. That they aren't nearly as powerful as they make themselves out to be. That our God is far more powerful than they are. This doesn't need to only reflect the worldly powers of military or political might. No, it can also be like waking from a dream when it comes to their false beliefs, their false understandings of justice, of the view of the world, of reality itself. Waking up to realize they were all wrong. Only Christ is right. Only what he has instructed and given can provide any life either here or into eternity. We have the answer that unlocks the universe. We have been granted access to truth. Let us not settle for ourselves, nor the power of the here and now. No, let's not be whitewashed tombs full of dead bones. Let's be revived in the truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, knowing that in him we find true peace, we find true life, now and forever. Now, naturally, this leads to the gospel. So, is this like working well for people? Looks nice, pretty. Okay. Yeah. Ellen's giving me a yes. So, that's, that's not all that matters. <laughs> but, <laughs> for now. When we're alone, it will be. Um, <laughs> but, no, it leads us to the gospel of Christ. Our origins. Where we begin. How this universe came to be. It comes through this great God who has created all things. And that question that the kids asked, did God know before he created anything that Adam and Eve would sin? I mean, yeah. (laughs) God knows all things. He knows both what is true and what is untrue. He knows every action that we take and the repercussions of every action that we take. Um, Anyone know chaos theory? I talk about it sometimes. Chaos theory? Anyone? Butterfly flaps its wings in Africa and there's a hurricane in the Atlantic because, like, it's just one small thing leads to the rest Now, we can't know all those little details because, let's be real, the world is huge. But what if there's one who can? (laughs) What if there's one who knows exactly if that butterfly flaps its wings here in Africa, there's going to be a Category 5 hurricane over here? What if there's someone who knows that? There is someone who knows that. His name is God. He created all of this, and he designed all of this. He knows every little detail. If a mosquito were to sting you right now, he knows the repercussions of what's going to happen 10 years from now because of that. (laughs) Do you? (laughs) Do you know what's going to happen in 10 years because of a mosquito bite? Do you know what's going to happen in the next 10 seconds? You might itch a little, maybe. That's the best guess you have, right? So we have this God who created the universe, created all that we see, and you think about all the detail that goes into that. All the majesty that we see, the glory behind the universe. And we see the stars in the nighttime sky. And we see the galaxies, the billions of stars within each galaxy. And the billions of billions of galaxies. And you think, how marvelous. And yet, how rare for us to have life. 
how rare that on this little blue dot in all of that, we exist. And not only do we exist, we're made in God's image above everything else. It's a marvelous thing. It's an incredible thing that you exist as you are. If there were no God, the chances of you existing are zero. (laughs) But yet God exists and he made you in his image. And you have dignity and sanctity and worth to life no matter who you are. That's a great thing. But then what happens? The same thing that we happened, um, happens in this chapter. <laughs> the people of God who turned away from God. The image bearers of God who turned away from God. And they sin, and they sin, and they sin. And they lie, they cheat, they steal, they murder. They look around, they see power. And they just keep on grabbing it without ever looking up to the glory of God. I mean, we could talk about all the craziness of our world today. We could talk about coronavirus. We could talk about, you know, the Great Reset and all that jazz. Anyone know about that one yet? (laughs) It's going to come out eventually. I don't know if I believe it, by the way. Um, But still, I might. I don't know. Regardless, evil exists, doesn't it? And that's a serious problem when evil exists because if God is so great, then, you know, how on earth can evil exist if God is so good? The answer is that he gave us free will. And that freedom of will allows me to pick up something and throw it at Mike right now if I want to. Or I could say, Mike, you're awesome. (laughs) Give him an encouragement. But it also allows me to hate, to hinder to break, but it also allows me to love, to give peace and patience and kindness. Unfortunately, though, every time that I fail, it's just more guilt against me, and I always fail, don't I? Or at least I fail too often. And we all do. And if there is truly a truly righteous and God out there who judges, then I deserve judgment for my sins, and so do you. So the question is, how can we be redeemed? And the answer is right here in this text as well, isn't it? They wake up from the dream, and they see God for who he is. And they see the powers of the world and the sin of the world, and they say, this is disgusting. God is what's really the important thing. And through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we find redemption, salvation, like we talked about with the kids. That through him, his perfect life, we are able to be redeemed. If you were to ask me how God knew or why God created humanity knowing that we were going to fall so far away from him, and you're asking me what good could come from it, I would point to Jesus. That's the good. Because now we know love. Now we know grace. We can experience it within our very soul. And we can then provide it to others as well. And where is it all leading us? It's leading us to a world which is going to be perfect. A world in which there's no more sin. There's no more darkness. There's no more death. But that we'll be able to experience our God perfectly and each other perfectly. There's a song that I know where um, it talks about uh, someone who dies. And, well, he's, the point of the song is that they're going to die. And, uh, but he says, when I see you again, I'll wake up and I'll see you as you always were. Or as you could have been. I could have had visions of this. And I saw little glimpses of you being so good. 
But now I see it perfectly. And that's what it's going to be like for each of us when we awake on the other side. We're going to be able to see each other so perfectly as we were supposed to be. And it's going to be glorious. And we're not going to look at each other and say, good job. We're going to look at Christ and say, thank you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the prophets who remind us that faithlessness doesn't lead to life. Faith does. And that it's not faith in ourselves, not faith in this world, but faith in you, in what you have accomplished. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would continue to lead us. We ask that we wouldn't allow the spirits of the world to deceive us. But instead that we would seek truth. And we would proclaim the truth. And even if it should hurt us, that we would know that in the end, it leads to infinite joy. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. You have promised us, Lord, eternity with you. You have promised us, and you will deliver upon the promise. So, Lord, we ask for continued strength, continued wisdom. We ask for discernment, which doesn't come from the world, but from you. For you have turned this world upside down through your son, Jesus Christ. But in turning it upside down, you have turned us right side up. We thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.